Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. So gear up with the crew as they talk about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, I want to welcome you back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Got a really, really awesome guest today. Uh, actually, Charlie Church from Virginia is joining us today. But before we get into the conversation, and this is really the first time we've ever done this before, but one of our actual podcast sponsors uh, wanted to offer um, a discount to anybody who listens to the podcast. And so Real Sportswear, Andrew Foster from Real Sportswear, who's one of our first year sponsors for the podcast, wants to offer, offer excuse me, 15% off any of uh, purchases that, they, uh, that you guys have from Real Sportswear. And it's just simply using the promo code SPEC15 at checkout. So S-P-E-C-K-1-5 at checkout and get 15% off real sportswear. Dude, look, listen, this guy's admittedly not because he's a podcast sponsor, but really does have some great stuff. But I don't want to belabor the point. You get it. Please represent and uh, support some of our podcast sponsors. But let's get into today's discussion. Again. Charlie Church, Virginia. Brother, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, man. Excited to be here. Yeah, no worries, man. So, holy smokes, dude. We were, we've been trying to line this up for a hot minute. And um, we're kind of trout nerds, admittedly. Uh, I'm over here in Texas and, and you're in Virginia. And so it's funny because it feels like our lineage is simply being trout nerds and, and really looking at data and kind of some analytics behind things, but really dissecting that stuff. And I really wanted to talk a lot about today the citation data that Virginia and the state of Virginia is collecting and has been collecting for really a long time uh, and really kind of kind of pick that apart a little bit. So but before we get into the conversation, bud, uh, for those who maybe have not heard of you, uh, tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Hey, so um, I've been kayak fishing, I guess, for 11 or 12 years mm -hmm. um fishing my whole life i mean i got into fishing when i was maybe like four or five my um parents would take me and then my grandmother lived in virginia beach my grandfather they would take me out um so it's kind of been like a lifelong pursuit um i do work a normal nine to five day job so uh fishing something i try and fit in as much as possible um that's about it i mean i love it uh, trout fishing in particular. I mean, I'm totally obsessed with it. Uh, as I think, as you'll see, I've looked into data. I, I tried to figure everything out about them. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, for sure. And so, um, we'd already, I mean, you'd been a follower for quite some time now, um, actually with Speckle Truth and you would always submit, you know, Virginia citations to us, which is obviously fish over 27 inches and above. And just, you know, establishing that relationship and rapport with each other over the course of time, it's kind of lend itself to this conversation that we're having today, which I think is going to be pretty cool. But <clears throat> what I was going to say is, you know, we looking at a lot of the data and the analytics, you know, behind fishing and seeing how you guys approach your fishery. Um, it's very, very interesting to see kind of, you know, things transpire here in Texas, but how they might affect you guys and how you, it, you know, changes your approach maybe into your Virginia fishery. So dude, admittedly, I am not familiar with the Virginia complex or estuary. Like, tell us a little bit more about that area and maybe where you fish. Um, so I'm in, uh, the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, I live in Virginia beach, which is like the Southern, uh, point of the Chesapeake Bay. Mm -hmm. Um, our trout fisheries year round. Uh, so we get a lot of, um, well, I guess I'll start with the winter. Uh, some of our fish uh, stay year-round, and a lot of them go to North Carolina. Uh, so you can fish the residents in the winter. And then um, the North Carolina fish come up. Uh, they come up to spawn. Uh, so summer fishing is great. Spring fishing as they're transitioning in is great. Uh, and then it kind of repeats itself. So 
falls like what a lot of people call the speckled trout season up here because mm -hmm. uh, there's fish feeding up to migrate out there's fish feeding up to migrate to where they're wintering there's some fish that are just up to migrate where they are um there, there's multiple schools of uh fish up here um mm -hmm. does, does that make sense no absolutely yeah i mean we we see something you know growing up in louisiana obviously not to that you know where they're actually crossing state boundaries which they do you know over in like mississippi uh, obviously over in the sabine complex over towards kind of the upper coast here in texas but really what we would see internal to the fishery is we would see a lot of transition from fish in the winter time coming into the fishery so like you have like these barrier islands um out in like the southeast louisiana area so folks maybe listening from louisiana uh towards venice you have like a kind of like a barrier island chain obviously chandelier is part of that in the east side of the river on the west side of the river you have like schofield you have uh, the Empire area, so a lot of the areas around like Shell Island, Chelan Pass, and you have a various amount of passes. Well, what happens is those fish will come out to the passes in the spring, summer, do their thing, higher salinity, stuff like that, right? And then when the, you know, colder or cooler temperatures come in, you'll see those fish pull into a fishery, and then as it gets colder, they'll push all the way back into those dredged kind of, you know, pipeline canals up into the fishery which is really quite a ways away from the actual exterior beaches right and so we're seeing a lot of movement there in the louisiana complex so that's kind of what i would i think equate it to yeah uh, the amount of i guess the amount of movement from fish in a fishery is that kind of what you're talking about yeah and so me and a couple other people think that there's both migratory and residential fish. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so you get like mixes of schools. Um, like I've tagged fish uh, in the lower bay and um, in the winter, like around now that'll go up to Maryland. Mm -hmm. And then I've also caught fish that have come from North Carolina up here. And then the, the most important I think is I've caught fish that have lived in the same area for multiple months. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, like each river system has their own resident population as well as the migratory schools. No, I'm, I'm tracking there. And, yeah. and, and there's something along those lines here on the, on the Texas coast too, where, you know, a lot of it stems in, uh, Wayne Davis and I touched on it in his podcast a little bit, whether or not like there's these quote unquote, like surf runners where there's this kind of not a subspecies, but this kind of different part of the speculative you know speckled trout population that stays out in the gulf and roams the gulf um on the outside of the passes and then there's like these bay residents like they're talking about and probably there's probably minimal influx of the amount of fish coming from the gulf into the bays and vice versa from the fish that kind of grow up in the bay actually going out to the gulf and so it sounds like that that's something kind of along those lines where you see there are residents, but you'll also see a lot of, you know, population where fish do come and go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's cool. Like some days you'll, you'll get a push of fish and there'll be sea lice on them and oh, no you'll, you'll just smoke them. Uh, and then two or three weeks later, that size class is, has moved on. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, last summer I was on a really, really nice school of fish for like four months and then come fall, they were gone. No kidding. Now, I, dude, I didn't know you guys had like a, a trout tagging program. Is that true? Yep. Um, I, I want to say our tagging program's been around for a while. Um, it's, Has it? It's uh, prolific, I guess. Um, I think we tag like 20,000 trout a year. No kidding. Um, yeah, it, it's cool. Can anyone sign up? Uh, so they take 200... Um, taggers uh so if 50 people leave they replace with 50 people oh, that's um, cool it's a sign up annually uh they do like training in march or february um yeah i mean it's it's great i love doing it that's cool and so you were going to share actually before the podcast and i stopped you and you're like, <laughs> i got a really cool tagging uh story so uh go ahead and share that man if you don't mind sure um so i guess it was uh last june um, I tagged a, a really good fish of my buddies, uh, Tim Morris. He's kind of mm -hmm. like my fishing mentor. Um, I 
tagged it at 27 and a quarter. Uh, it was a, a spawning fish. It was weighed seven pounds. Uh, we released it. it. It did not swim off well. Like we worked it for five minutes, uh, got it to swim away, and that was that. And then a month later, um, I had a fish at a top water. Um, I thought it was a red until I got to the boat, and it was that trout. Um, so in a month, same location, 100 yards down, same tide, same wind, <laughs> same mm. moon phase, uh, and it had grown to 28 inches. No kidding. Uh, it, it did not swim off well again. Um, so I, I, I hope it's still swimming. But Man, just the resiliency of those fish. And it, I mean, you saw my post on Facebook where, yep. you know, dude, do what you can to, to responsibly, you know, release the fish, you know, try not to take it out of the water too long, you know, and get the right angle, you know, for Facebook and all these other stuff, you know what I'm saying? And then aside from that, like, you know, watch where your hands are in terms of, you know, where your hands are with regards to gill placement and stuff like that and give the, give the fish an optimal chance. But it even shows like, even some of those times where you feel like, oh man, maybe that fish isn't in the greatest condition. The mm -hmm. fact that you still release it and it swam off, you're like, oh man, I hope it doesn't float up. Dude, it shows that, man, it, you would probably maybe harvest that fish if you're looking, you know, again, it, and it's struggling a little bit. You're like, man, let's just harvest it. Yeah, it came well, back. It, it does, <laughs> it's definitely truth, right? I mean, where they will not they at least have a chance as opposed to like lining an igloo where they have zero chance, you know? Yep. And I mean, when we first found it, when we first caught it, it was in a school of fish, like a uh, mm. big fish. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I caught it again, it was in that same school. I mean, I caught a 29, like maybe 30 minutes later. So Damn, really cool so... to see. So, I mean, how, how many big fish do you, do you catch a year? Uh, I mean, so I, big fish in Virginia is, I think, a little bit different um, than Texas. Like our our citation is a 24 inch release mm -hmm. um, or five pounds. Um, I think last year I did maybe 25 citations. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have I have it up in front of me actually. Uh, so I did 24. Uh, okay. I didn't I didn't register them all, um, but I mean. I'd like to do as many as possible. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, but you, I mean, it, it's a pretty prolific big trout fishery. Yeah, it can be. Uh, I want to say it's ups and downs. I think mm -hmm. I think this year's going to be really good. Um, and why do you say that? So last year was good. Uh, we had probably the most citations we've had in a couple of years. And Which we'll talk about here in a sec, but go ahead. Yeah, the size was good too. I mean, there was a lot of 24s and 25s. Um, a lot of 26s and 27s as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think those fish will be back and they'll be a little bit bigger. There was also a lot of 23s, which will push into that 24 range. Mm -hmm. um, so, barring no winter kill, uh, I think next year will be really good. Now, how do you guys, how are y'all faring? I mean, we're right now, we're in like the the vice grip of winter where we're like staring at an impending fish kill here in the Texas coast. Um, where do you see like Virginia in regards to like cold stone and stuff like that? I mean, to be honest, I, I feel a lot better today than I did a week ago. Um, we're like one really bad cold snap from being mm -hmm. terrible. Uh, Keith, uh, he found two really big fish and he's found some dead ones. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, th there hasn't been many fish kills yet. Um, I, I'm still catching them. I mean, I tagged a 24 inch fish the other day in 39 degree water. That's um, crazy, man. Yeah, I mean, we're still catching them in forty degree water. Uh, like but how, if we how get... are you? Yeah, how are you approaching those fish, man? Like being that cold. I, to be honest, I'm not even fishing it that slow. Um, we're we're looking in different spots though. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at like like mouths of bays and like if if one area's deepest area is eight feet, we're looking at the flats closest to that deep area. Um, but retrieves, I haven't really slowed down too much. I mean, still 27s, Corky's, Steve's, mm -hmm. and they're still hitting it really hard too. Yeah. So, cause you would think, man, and that's, that's something in, in it's kind of like a running joke now, <laughs> uh, Mike McBride. I mean, we've talked about it ad nauseum, you know, you always hear people, oh, in the winter time, you got to fish it low and slow, you know, and, and obviously you're in 39 degree water and you're still fishing kind of your technique, your retrieve technique, your cadence and stuff like that, which is 
on a on a quicker realm right and so mm-hmm. we've perpetually said that man over the course of a, a long time of like in the winter time man like admittedly like even fishing a jerk bait like i'm trying to pop the knot on like that jerk bait i'm twitching the hell out of it so hard you know and <clears throat> like mcbride and them they're i mean same situation when we're throwing corkies man we're fishing it we're, we're catching them on floaters man like four foot you know, and, and fishing them real quick. And so those fish, when they come up, they're pounding it. And, and it's the same with like that mega bass vision 110 high float that I've been throwing. I mean, these are fish that are probably in like that four foot realm and they're coming up in like mid 50 degree water temp and I'm twitching the hell out this thing and they're hitting it so hard. And that's the one thing I've learned with this high float is when they hit it and I think it lends itself to maybe some of the actual, um, capabilities of that bait and maybe the fish haven't seen that and so when they're hitting it they're so mad at it when they come up and hit it and get hooked they're so mad they'll actually get airborne i've had more airborne fish hit this bait and after being hooked they'll just completely come up man and like tarpon and stuff it's pretty crazy but it shows that even in like those colder water temps to your point which is man no yeah, biologically, you would think they would slow down, and I'm sure they do. But, dude, when they're ready to feed, they're eating, man. And, and you cannot work a bait, to some extent, sometimes too fast. You know, I mean, they're coming up and killing it. Yeah, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Like, some days, like, I do have to work it a little slow, and, like, you mm-hmm. don't even feel the bite. But other, like, I think it's kind of reacting at what the environment's telling you. or like when, mm-hmm. So, I mean if you're fishing it slow and they're not biting then you speed it up and then all of a sudden they smoke it so i'm not locked into one like i have to fish it slow and i, I don't really like to fish slow either so yeah now define your slow because i think a lot of people slow is different so like what what would you define as slow maybe like a, a three if i'm pausing for like three seconds that's mm-hmm. that's slow mm-hmm. uh, that that's like three to four second pauses like as slow as i'll go um normally it's like a one to two second pause after like one or two twitches Mm -hmm. and that's on like a jerk bait or that's on like a 27 or a a steve's broke back or something like that right yeah so you're still throwing again a lot of those larger profile baits where again that's another thing years like downsize like downsize and work it slow and fish these areas and i'm like dude man like i'm telling you these big fish are just kind of unique where that doesn't that rule doesn't necessarily apply to those fish, man. They're, they're, they're pretty, pretty crazy, uh, particularly here in wintertime. And I think that gives a little bit of an upper, upper advantage for us, you know, truly targeting these big, big bites is the fact that we are fishing in kind of like different techniques in different ways. Um, where a lot of the, I would probably say like the smaller fish would retreat to, to maybe some deeper areas and deeper pockets or deeper canals or things of that nature where you do have to bounce a jig on the bottom or something like that. But dude, a lot of these big fish they're when they're in hunt mode, they come up skinny, man, and they'll eat and they'll, and they'll stay on it. And you can fish a lot of those same profiles and a lot of those same baits and capabilities during that time. Right. I mean, yeah, is that kind of what you guys are seeing in, in Virginia? Yeah, exactly. And, and there's two things that I think have been really important for like fish in cold weather. Um, majors and minors i mean that it's i i totally believe in it and in the winter or even in the summer when it's really hot i think that's when they're most important mm-hmm. um and and reading your surroundings um for us i mean we have a lot of pelicans that stay near where the bait and trout are and if you can find where the pelicans are that's usually in a, like a sign that there's trout near there um so those are the two things that have helped me out in the winter uh but oh my god i can't wait until spring yeah Dude, so funny you mentioned pelicans because two quick things uh, to that point. Again, of just being aware of kind of your surroundings. Obviously, if you got pelicans nearby, what does that mean? It means you got bait, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Those pelicans are eating. So last week, I fished five of seven days, and it was like stuff of legend, man. Like you always hear down here in the Texas coast where you could just find a a big school of big fish. And honestly, man, I was able to stay on them. But one morning I went and it's funny before I even made a cast, I'm like, it's going to be a good day. There were 
probably like 15 or 20 of those white pelicans that come down and they were just roosting in this cove on this on the shoreline that I decided I was going to wade and I'm like oh man this is going to be epic and sure enough man and so ultimately they kind of took off and then the brown pelicans kind of came in behind them and then they started diving on bait kind of in the same area and it was cool to see and I was explaining this to my brother today um since I fished five of those seven days I was able to see that bait adapt over the course of the week and the environmental conditions that were provided and presented. And so earlier in the week, it was sunnier, but it was colder. It had a little higher pressure system kind of sitting over us and those water temps were cooler and that water was low. And so what I felt was like that bait was pulled off the bank a little bit and those big trout were kind of roaming. They were in an, they were in a school-ish but they were kind of more kind of freelance roaming this kind of area because the bait was nearby. And the bait wanted to get up on this grass flat. And there just wasn't enough water in the column for them to get up there and feel comfortable. Well, as the week progressed, that water came back up with some east wind. And that bait ended up popping up on top of that grass. And what I found was I wasn't catching them where I was catching them earlier in the week. I had to pull back with the bait and and kind of fish this grass ledge because now the the big trout weren't necessarily roaming kind of this this huge flat. Instead, they were keyed up on this ledge, this little drop, and they were just kind of roaming that. And that's when I started kind of dialing back into them. And so to see that kind of transpire over the course of a week, that was super cool to me. And it shows that like, yeah, again, being aware of your surroundings, pelicans, bait. And, and dialing into that and, and then having the confidence to fish these different techniques that give you those capabilities to fish, whatever you're fishing, man, that was, that was cool to see, man. So it's interesting to hear you say that this is the same up in Virginia, you know? Yeah, totally. And I mean, what you, what you did is kind of like my favorite thing to do is if you can pattern them and just stay on them for a week or two, I mean, that, that's hard to beat. Like you're totally in tune with what's going on, you know, like, in, in an hour or two hours when the water gets just right, they'll be there. So, I mean, I'm jealous. That sounds awesome. Oh, dude. It, <laughs> uh, dude, a 29 and three quarter, a 28 and a quarter, four over 27, and probably like a half dozen, man, a 25 to 26 inch range. I mean, it was, again, man, for a guy from Southeast Louisiana, I mean, that that's stuff of legend, man. When you're fishing five days and having that sort of production, um, and dude, I didn't move. Like I literally milked that same spot it was really one stretch of bank for really an entire week and nobody else fished it, which was even better. Right. And it was kind of funny cause it was really under everyone's nose. And I, I just so happened to stop by there the week prior when I was fishing just to see kind of what was going on. I was trying to get away from some of the crowds and that's when I caught like one or two smaller fish, probably in like the 19, 20 inch range. And that's when I was like, okay, they got some fish here. So when I went back, I'm like, I'm going to bypass the crowds. I'm going to just go milk this area and kind of see what what's happening here. And ended up catching at 29 and three quarter on day one. And that's when I'm like, okay, maybe we're on to something here this week. And so I just stayed on it, but I watched that bite kind of evolve over the course of a week. And that, oh man, I wish I could fish <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Sadly, man, I got to go back to work, you know, and, and grind and, in in cash ins or build up some more kitchen passes right but that's who we are man right i mean you're not a guide and that's what i love having you guys on a podcast too because you're like me where you're just so ate up with it but you got to work a regular nine to five man to provide for the family and so uh but man i i can't wait to hopefully be able to do that one day i mean they give you they give you pto no, I took leave, man. I, I didn't take a whole leave, man. Oh, no. I take a whole week of leave, but I, I don't care. Dude, I'm on that type of bite. It was epic, man. Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it as work starts at 9. You can fish before 9. <laughs> work, work ends at 5. You can fish after. And you got Dude, PTO. I wish. Well, I mean, you're, you're in terms of proximity to the coast might be a little bit better, but... Yeah, a lot yeah, better. Yeah, I'm two and a half hours out, man, <laughs> so there's no way I'm going to make it back. Now, when COVID started, um, I was quote unquote teleworking and it was like a late spring early summer uh deal and so it gets light here you know like 5 30 
And so I was able to fish from 5.30. I had my timer set, my phone. It'd be like 7.45, 8 o'clock. That means I can get back in, in the truck by like 8.15, and I'll be ready to go, man, teleworking all the way back home, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, man, you got to do what you got to do. This season, we'd like to recognize one of our newest sponsors, and that is Down South Lures. From their regular 4-inch Southern Shad to the 5-inch Supermodel and versatile 3-inch Burner Shads, it's easy to see why these baits have become a go-to for many Texas anglers. Designed with their unique hybrid tail, its natural swims-in-the-fall action produces big trout not only here in the Texas coast, but across all estuaries. Aside from that, though, they're made right here in the USA. So be sure to support this Texas brand that supports you in pursuit of that next big bite. Real Sportswear humbly started making shirts for a few local fishermen. Rooted in simplicity and utility, Real's minimalist approach is a reflection of what binds the fishing industry together. Now found throughout many coastal retailers, their lineup of comfortable and functional gear aims to make your time in the water a success. So next time you're gearing up, wear what guides wear and consider Real Sportswear. Mirror Lure is an iconic inshore fishing lure company found in every angler's arsenal. From their legendary lineup of lures such as the Top Dog and Catch 2000 to their versatile soft plastics like the Little John and Marshmallow, these lures not only catch fish, but have produced for decades. So whether it's a 17MR or a Paul Brown Series Fat Boy, always remember to tie on a mirror lure and turn on the bike. Texas Custom Lures and the original Custom Corky have been podcast sponsors for the first two seasons and we're incredibly appreciative. This Texas brand with inputs from the most respectable guides across the Texas coast complete every big trout angler's arsenal. With great fish catching colors, my personal favorites, Texas Turnip, Bay Mistress, Plum Nasty to name a few, it's easy to see how these things produce time and time again. So next time you're targeting that next big bite, I highly encourage you to fish the original custom Corky. And remember, the big girls aren't colorblind. Hey man, let's dig into some of the citation stuff, right? So you'd kind of alluded to it a little bit that this year, 2020, was actually a really good year of citations caught in the state of Virginia. And so... But my calculations and just going out there, you can Google search, you know, the Virginia citations uh, for 2020. It actually pulls up an entire list for all species. But if you sift through speckled trout, I counted 625 um, actual entries into the Virginia citation program. Is that what you got? Yeah. And so something you got to keep in mind is um, not everyone's registering citations Um, Mm -hmm. like I would look at it as like a, a general gauge of how the fishery is. Sure. Um, but I mean, yeah, this year was good. I, I actually went a little further and took the, uh, so they provide Excel files on the citation site. And mm-hmm. I took all of the Excel files and put it into a Power BI, which is like a data analytics thing. Okay. No um, Cause I was just curious, like, I don't know, how does this year rank to previous years or like how many, 27s there were this year how many 30s mm-hmm. uh and of course we had the, the hot ditch um previously so like what was it like how good was it with the hot ditch versus if you took the hot ditch data out and how good was it each year with looking at that um, but yeah this year this year was good so hey for a lot of our listeners that may be listening from other states outside of virginia I know what the hot ditch is. I've never fished there, but I've heard, you know, stories of legend there. But if you can kind of briefly describe, you know, what the hot ditch was or it actually was. Um, so the hot ditch uh, was a warm water discharge um, in the Elizabeth River, the southern branch. And the Elizabeth River already is like a it's a good river for staying warm throughout the winter. It's deep. It's kind of industrial, a lot of mud. And tannic water and the hot ditch uh kept it warm so i mean the winters that's where a lot of big fish wintered and a lot of people fished in the hot ditch for those big fish and caught absolutely monstrous trout now when did the hot ditch close um i think it was it was the year of 1415 
Um, so 2015, there was no hot pitch. Okay. Uh, and it happened to close uh, in line with a really bad fish kill. Um, so, I mean, our fishery got destroyed that year. Um, like, I've seen photos of just the hot ditch lined with thousands of huge fish. And then uh, some other dudes gillnetted the whole river during the kill when it closed. So, I mean, it really got hammered. And I remember seeing that and reading that, um, yeah, that there were a lot of poachers. And yeah. I think, you know, of the confiscations that they had, I mean, it was an entire truck bed full of hampers of just enormous trout. And, yeah, and like it's so sad. Ones. Yeah, like like huge ones, eight to ten pound range, right? Probably plus. Uh, plus, um, yeah, a lot bigger. Yeah. <laughs> Which is insane, right? That that operation was going on in conjunction with the closure of the hot ditch, in conjunction with this insanely extreme weather event that came through, and again, something that we're kind of seeing here in Texas, you know, and hopefully it doesn't repeat of eighty three. Um, where we see a, a large fish kill and, you know, you always hear stories of legend there. I've talked to Mike Blackwood and, you know, what was it like, you know, driving around in Baffin Bay, you know, during 83 and just seeing, you know, these large fish up on a bank and, you know, in, in, in the land cut and stuff like that. And it's, yeah, again, you hear like these stories of legend of, you know, mid 30 fish, you know, just washed up on a bank, you know? And so it, not only for, that particular time but it also and it's kind of gut-wrenching because you know like that's the future of your fishery too mm -hmm. you know yeah i mean to put it into perspective um there were i mean 245 uh uh 27 inch or greater um trout caught in 2014 and this is just released so if it's a weight i don't have that counted mm -hmm. on here uh and there was 13 the next year <laughs> So, yeah. I mean, like really dramatic drop. And you uh, see that, right? I mean, you, and, and maybe I'll figure out a way, maybe we could share this on like the speckle truth group on Facebook or something like that. But you have like that kind of bar graph that shows yep. and you show basically like, um, where production is starting to increase 2014, 15. And I mean, it is like a, a cliff yeah. to where it's nothing, you know? Yeah. I mean, like cliff is an understatement it just mm -hmm. you can barely see the bar uh if you take the hot the hot ditch data out because there's still fish in the hot ditch at the beginning of 15 uh, there was one 27 inch fish and in all of virginia registered that year um it, it, it's coming back up though like the the charts look good like last year we had 57 or 51 fish over 27 caught um again a lot of people don't register, but uh, 51's a lot more than one. Um, so, I mean, to put into perspective, uh, let's see, in 2013, not including the hot ditch, there was 93 over 27. So I, we're kind of getting back to that, like, our fisheries recovered point, I think, like, another year or two, and it'll be, it'll be good. That's really crazy to think that, you know, how integral that hot ditch was to the trout population where you did have 245 in a year to one, obviously now what would back up to like 75, you said? Uh, 51 last year. 51. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a steady increase there, but again, man, that's, that's nowhere near of a, a sh you know, a shred of what it once was, you know? Yeah. And I mean, so what the hot ditch was famous for, was it, it put up humongous fish. Um, mm -hmm. I, I went through and I was just curious, um, like what the longest fish registered was and this is just the data since 2000 i, I can't get uh the 90s um and there was a 15 pounder in 99 mm. um there was a 38 inch trout caught and released uh legit um like not an exaggeration uh, there's been three 37s in the hot ditch um a 36 <laughs> uh and then 130 fish over 10 pounds oh my god and, and these are i mean there, there's more, uh, like a lot of people didn't register. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. So the one that you, uh, so Anthony B Hayden, uh, I think is the one that you're referring to, which was in on 28 December, 2005 was a 38, 38 inch fish in Elizabeth river. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other one I see 
that kind of stands out. Let's see, the latest one on that is it looks like January 3rd, 2014, Mark Foster caught one. It was 34 inches. And I mean, from 37 all the way to 34, there's one, two, close to 20 in the yeah. 37 to 34 inch range. Yeah. Uh, it's that were all come from Elizabeth River, i.e., the hot ditch, you know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of really big fish. Um, I know that 38 was, was not weighed. It was released. Mm-hmm. Uh, that guy didn't want to keep it. Um, he, he caught a ton of big fish. I, did, I, I don't know him. I just know that he caught a ton of big fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a lot of big fish. There was one guy who won the fishing tournament, which is like the citation program. Uh, he won the biggest trout probably three or four years, and each one was huge, like 14 or 15 pounds. Mm. Or maybe not 15, I think 13 to 14 pounds. What was his name? Uh, gosh, I can't remember. I mean, I'm sure it, it would come up if you looked it up. He's all over the place. Yeah. To give everyone in, you know, listening here, Hugh Morris on 29 May 2011 in Mob Jack Bay caught one that was 33 and three quarter. Um, that's the only fish from that time and from that spreadsheet that you're telling me that was kind of in that realm. All the other ones came from that kind of hot ditch area. You know, that's crazy to me, man. Mm-hmm. Um, so just shows, man, the, one, the level of production uh, from that area. But aside from that, man, on those northern reaches of the speckled trout kind of fishery, it shows, man, those fish can get really big up there. And you guys have a, a pretty dynamic fishery up there. Yeah, I, I want to say it's because we're like the northern end of the range so they mm-hmm. they kind of have the genes they have to eat well to survive the winters um we did have the world record at one point maybe i don't know if the genetics or not we have a lot of adult menhaden that they eat bill catco i think was a guy who owned your state record it's like is it 16 pounds or 15 pounds or something it, like it was 16 uh it was a little over 16 and it was on the eastern shore and he caught it bait fishing with uh cut bluefish not for trout he was just out fishing and caught, you know, world record trout. That's crazy. And I think Keith had mentioned that. Uh, Keith Nuttall, he was on the podcast season one. Excellent podcast for those folks who uh, haven't heard that one before. But you also made reference to Keith earlier where he was riding around and picked up a lot of the cold stun fish that had died. And what he picked up two thirty, like 30 and a half or 31, it was 10 pounds. Uh, so, it, man, it, it just shows that you guys have them. Those beasts of legend do exist kind of in your area, you know? Yeah, and that's that's kind of like a big motivation is like, you you know they're here. You know the bay can put up a giant fish. Um, it's just they're not all clumped up in a warm water discharge now, so they're, they're harder to find, but they're here. We have the absolute potential to put up a monster, so mm-hmm. it's exciting. Yeah, so let's talk about time of year because – you know, looking back through, you had mentioned kind of, you know, your fishery is kind of like a fall fishery. And so going back through what I saw just from the 2020 data, and I'm going to rattle off some numbers here. So for everybody who's, you know, numbers, OCD, I'm sorry, (laughs) but uh, really um, I'll start with January. So January, there were 12 fish uh, citations. So that's 24 and above. Uh, January, there was 12. February, there was two. March, there were 10. April, 29. May, 16. June was 40. 15 in July. 14 in August. 39 in September. And then October rolls around, and it's 107. Then November rolls around, it's 227. And in December, rounding out the year was 104. So if you needed, um, for those folks in that kind of estuary, if you needed any sort of indication of what your fishery is in terms of seasonal pattern, I would definitely uh, probably throw out October, November, December to your point earlier is that is kind of like your prime time for speckled trout. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much 100%. Um, to be honest, I kind of like summer trout fishing a little bit more now. Um, you don't get the numbers that you get in the fall, but you, you can get some really big fish um, just targeting like fish that are, uh, spawning. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, falls, falls the time to trout fish for sure. Do you see a lot of your heavier, big or your heavier fish come in like that earliest summer 
late spring pattern? So um, the heaviest fish will be before the first spawn, uh, which is in June. Um, I, I caught one this spring that looked like it had been eating like burritos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the heaviest fish is then or in uh, December. Um, and then after, actually, I have a chart. Let's let's be totally accurate with this. Um, so the heaviest fish uh, is May, then November. Uh, I guess June is is not even close to that. So May, November, October, uh, September, June, as far as like what the data shows for the heaviest fish. Mm-hmm. Say that one more time. Uh, so it's um, November's uh, the heaviest when the most heavy fish get put up, mm-hmm. uh, then May, then October, then September, then June. Okay. So it is, it is fall. You still see some super heavy fish and that's probably those fish coming off of a summer feed. Now they're starting to maybe see a little bit more bait. Cause fall is kind of synonymous with, I feel like a lot of bait in the fishery, a lot of that, you know, a lot of heavy feeding, getting kind of preparing for winter. And so maybe those fish are just kind of getting really, getting really heavy. And then in, during the course of the winter, they maybe shed some of those pounds just trying to survive and then coming back around, obviously pre-spawn, uh, putting on weight, obviously getting ready for the spawn. Is that kind of what kind of in line with your thought there too? Yeah. I mean, I think that's like exactly what I'm thinking. I think they're, they just eat really heavy before their first spawn. Um, and then the, November, the heavy fish are just preparing to get ready for winter. Okay. Yeah, no, I got you. Now, how do you target them? Or let me phrase that. Your approach to targeting them, how does that change from spring, summer to fall, winter for you? Um, so we can start with spring. Um, spring, I mean, your spot selection is going to change. Um, so I'll probably fish areas that I think they're migrating past. Um, as far as tactics, I mean, top waters, twitch baits, stuff like that. Um, summers where it, it gets a little bit more difficult. Like you got to wake up early or fish late to get like um, the coldest water of the day. Um, one thing that I've learned is uh, like we, we have a lot of thunderstorms. Uh, and, and a thunderstorm is like a mini cold front. So if you go like the morning after a thunderstorm, the water's kind of nice and cold. So that's a good time to target a big fish. Um, and summer's top water time for me. That It's a lot of fun. Uh, and then fall, I mean, y- you could catch them on your keychain. Uh, <laughs> like for the big, the big fish are still, you know, using your brain, throwing big baits, uh, fishing shallow, stuff like that. Um, and then, winter you're kind of looking at areas where they're about to or where they're going to winter so like november mm-hmm. december you want to be close to where you think they're going to end up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now you fish primarily out of a kayak so are you fairly limited to where you can go in, in target those versus you know a guy with a with a boat and and all that stuff to be honest not in the bay um there's a lot of protected water in the bay uh, so as long as I can launch my kayak, I can I can get there. Um, the big thing with a kayak is when you commit to a spot, you're, you're there. <laughs> like, you're not picking up and going somewhere else. Uh, so it, it does force you to hone in on an area and um, maybe, like, grind it out. Uh, but now you can access nearly everything. But I find, though, man, and, and so let's let's face it, man. I mean, uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty much of a shore-based guy. I do most of my stuff via walk-in admittedly um i sold my banshee extreme before we left florida coming here i regret that decision now because we're only supposed to be here as a result of the air force for two years and so pending our next assignment i was going to obviously buy another boat if we stayed along the coast or obviously i would off you know if we were to move like to missouri or something like that god forbid um (laughs) you know no offense to anybody from missouri listening but um, no, nah, man. So now, I mean, I'm kind of stuck in, but what I find though, is kind of like you in kayaks, um, I'm kind of committed to an area. And so I do a lot of walking, a lot of walking, <laughs> uh, I wear kind of like a, a thing that tracks my steps and all that stuff. And I think the longest weight I had this year was close to like eight and a half miles. So oh my God. yeah, it, it can be a, it can be pretty daunting. So you gotta be 
pretty sound shape, but you can, it's pretty accessible. You just got to put in the legwork, admittedly. Um, but you're kind of locked in. But the good thing about that, my point to that is sometimes by being that way and kind of being forcibly put into that position, you have to start being a little bit more creative or more in tune. And even kind of your pre-trip planning of like, this is where I feel is going to have the best capability for that day. Right. And so you start kind of adding up all these odds. And now, I mean, this is like my sixth year fishing uh, on the Texas coast. So I'm kind of a little bit more in tune with that, but it was certainly trial by error. And I feel like you know, having some limited capabilities there, it forces you to be a little bit more refined on the water versus, oh, I'm just, if they're not here, I'll just go run over here. And sometimes having that luxury, you really bypass fish because you're not locked into maybe a certain pattern that they're on. Like I said the other day, I could see those fish over the course of that week and what that pattern was kind of transitioning into. Before most people pulled up, ah, I caught a couple of dinks and move on. I'm like, nah, man, scratching my head a little bit. Something's going on here. And, and sure enough, I use this one little thing on the bank actually that tells me where I was going. It actually was a, anybody that finds this is going to be very, very lucky, but it was actually a wooden pallet <laughs> on the bank. And man, the, the wooden pallet, when I first started fishing that area this uh, past week, was completely out of the water, maybe by two feet. Well, when I noticed that change, I'm like, man, I looked at that pallet and it's already kind of in the water by a foot. You know what I'm saying? So like, okay, that's key one. And then now I start to kind of refine and adapt and I could see that bait kind of working shallow. And I'm like, okay, this is what's going on. But having that limited capability, sometimes you be a little bit more in tune with what's going on with your fishery. Yeah, and something I've done, and I don't know if you do it or not, I log all of my trips. Um, if if I'm going to commit to an area in a kayak uh, and potentially maybe take PTO to fish it, I, I want to know, like, is it going to be good? Uh, so I, I'm looking at everything, and I, you can, or at least in some areas I fish, I can call a good day before I even get there based off the weather, mm -hmm. um, which is critical for a kayak. Yeah, I Dude, admittedly, I used to do that. I'm more so kind of keyed in uh, on majors and minors lately, um, more than anything, just because I feel like now I'm a little bit more in tune with those areas that I'm going to fish. And I mean, some of them, I, again, you got to walk a, a long, long way to get to the, to where it starts. Um, but when you get there, um, it's really understanding, okay, if, if I'm there early, I'm going to fish it till here. And then if nothing, then I'm either going to bail and go try another spot uh, or something else. But really, that's the thing that I'm really keyed into, Vert, more so than kind of like water level. We don't have a lot of tide here, so I really don't pay a tremendous amount of um, you know attention to the tide unlike probably a lot of our listeners like in Georgia, South Carolina or Mississippi and Virginia. Louisiana. Yeah, right. Where you have a you have some tidal influence. And obviously yeah. when I fish those areas, I would pay a lot of attention to tide. But I don't know, do you guys have a lot of tide? Yeah, I mean, um we can have like some areas have almost four to five foot swings. Oh gosh. Uh, yeah. The area I like is like three foot swings. Mm -hmm. Um so I mean like if I go out and wade, uh I better I better be game planned because I'll need some swimmies by the time the tide comes in. Well, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is a luxury about fishing here. Uh, it can, it can suck though, man. Cause if you're going in, like it's a picture perfect day where it's dead calm. Uh, admittedly, man, those are the toughest days here. So thank goodness, you know, the wind blows pretty much almost all the time here because that is your tidal movement. That is your water movement. I mean, the, when I said the water came up, it was a result of a wind driven event for an entire day. And you can see that water pile up and it was even cooler on the backside of that, even seeing that water fall back out, you know, and it's not tidally driven. It's more so wind driven. Uh, but shoot, man, growing up in Louisiana, we would pray for those dead calm days because we knew the tide was going to be a foot and a half coming in, something like this. And so we would set up on certain areas to target, you know, those fish because we knew there was going to be water movement. 
we just need to have contact with our bait, you know, and, and fish appropriately as a result of the wind conditions, you know? So that's, yeah. uh, that's definitely something I, I take for granted now as tide. I mean, you can really use it to your advantage too. Like my favorite thing or what's becoming my favorite thing is using a low tide, uh, to your advantage to find where the bait are. So like on a, on a low tide, on a flat, all the mullet and menhaden will get up shallow and like you'll see them they're like dancing around and v-waking and the second the tide starts to come in that's when like the big trout will feed on them mm-hmm. so you can you can literally plan exactly where you're going to fish the second the tide comes in and often it, it works out hmm. that's cool man yeah i like that stuff you know more so for us when the water is down i'm i'm really interested in finding new bottom contour and texture you know so i i that's why I love, honestly, man, some days having like really tough days, struggling, maybe not catching anything, but I've walked again, like eight miles or six miles, man, I, I put a lot of, I put a lot of earth underneath my feet, right? And I can feel it and I can, you know, trip into a rock or a grass ledge or something like that. And I, I earmark it and kind of like my own GPS in my brain. It's funny. I can't remember what I ate for breakfast this morning, but I can go out to an area and I'm like, okay, I can, it's almost like I have that, you know, live scope 360 in my brain. I'm like looking underwater. I'm like, okay, this is here. This is the year. And I still don't know crap, you know, but it's interesting. Um, but that's what we use low water for, um, here is to identify some of those areas that way when it water does come up or we have like a weather pattern, which drives some water on top of it. Yeah, well, you definitely know that those fish are going to re- relate to that stuff. And now you can target that and know what's going on versus somebody else who doesn't put in the legwork or the effort and understand truly what's going on. That's another huge advantage to wade fishing in general is just feeling what the texture of the bottom is, man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is, I, I get a little bit jealous of you guys not not having those huge tidal ranges because yeah. it, it would be nice to, to really put boots on the ground keith Mm -hmm. does it a lot i I plan on doing it more in the future yeah he and and that was what was cool talking with him was how much he actually weighed fishes in virginia you know i I didn't think that that would even be an option but it kind of makes sense but yeah he's like man i'll live for that stuff you know like oh that's that's pretty crazy yeah and so i mean i feel like kayak fishing is not too much different than wade fishing as far as like the we're not spooking a lot of fish mm-hmm. um we, we are spooking more fish than you are waiting uh but i i can get up really shallow i've had blowups like six inches from my boat um it's just we don't get as good of a appreciation of like what the bottom structure is like unless we're using our paddle to actually feel which is what i do no is that something like if you're scouting a new area like talk to us like a little bit about your approach there of maybe trying to feel out that new area what does your approach look like there um so i don't have a fish finder on my kayak um, i use uh my paddle um so it's if i'm in an area that i think has fish i'm putting my paddle on the ground feeling if it's like hard sand or mud mm-hmm. and then moving further down and i keep feeling around trying to feel if there's like a depth change or something uh, and usually i'm fishing pretty actively while looking around trying to like feel it out I'm big on the paddle depth finder for you. Um, do you find like a certain bottom texture coincides with time of year? Um, you could say mud's a little bit better in the winter, but I I really like like hard sand scattered shell. Um, okay. I'll stay on that year round if I can, to be honest. Yeah. Do y'all have a lot of grass up there? Um, we, we do have a decent amount of grass. Um, we don't have as much as we should, and uh, the grass is, is further up the bay for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we, we do have a pretty nice grass flats fishery. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, Keith, does he fish? Because uh, I think he's fishing Mob Jack Bay. Is, uh, maybe he may call me to the carpet on that, which is fine. But <laughs> I think he's fishing grass. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say where he's fishing, but yeah, um, <laughs> yeah uh, a lot of us. just totally give it away. I'm sorry, Keith, if I did. Uh, a lot of us fish grass. Uh, yeah. If there's no grass in your area, you can fish oysters. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're just looking for bottom structure. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Well, talk to us a little bit 
you know, about some of your tackle? Like what type of um, what type of lures do you like to throw? Um, so, I mean, I'm big on the mirror lures, uh, 27s, catch 2000s, um, catch fives, uh, Paul Brown's like Corky's, uh, I really like the Steve's. I mean, the broke back's been awesome for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, if I could fish a top water bite year round, I, I think I'd, my life would be complete. Um, and lately my favorite top water has been the Skitter V. No kidding. Uh, have you fished that yet? No, I haven't admittedly. <sighs> It, it's good dude it, it it's really good it, like so the tail is uh totally horizontal to the water unlike the skitter walk where it kind of like mm-hmm. dives down mm-hmm. um I, I had a lot of success with it i mean it's quickly become my favorite top water okay yeah i mean like i said in judd's in, in the eastern current podcast with judd's and brock man it, admittedly man like i do not throw top waters um, exclusively, don't get me wrong. I love you know, obviously watching them explode and all that stuff, but, and I know it's productive in terms of big fish with our citation data, but man, I really use it for like a, as, as a fish finder, right? If they're actively feeding fish in an area, I'll throw it just to get a response. And then what I do is I'll, I'll then dial it down and actually kind of chase them down a column. Um, and so like, yeah, if they're eating top or if they're responding to that, then I'll throw like a double D. Or, or or a floater or something like that, a fat boy floater. Yeah. And the reason I, for that is so they can they can tee up the bait. I think when that bait's sitting, that's why I don't throw top waters because I lose more fish than really than I than I care to admit, because you know, it's sitting on top of the water. And so when that fish eats, there's that kind of layer of, you know, um yeah, uncertainty where, you know, the fish may get the whole thing, they may not. As opposed to if it's in the column, chances are they're going to eat it. They're going to they're going to get a mouthful, you know, and I can at least have a good opportunity at sticking that fish and landing that fish. I'm kind of the same way. Like, I mean, if it's if they're going to hit top water, like if it's warmer, uh, mm-hmm. I have to start sunrise with the top water. Like, <laughs> I'd I'd feel terrible if I didn't. Uh, but then reacting to what they're doing, I'm um, like if they're airballing it, I might try and drop something right under the surface. Um, and if if they're not reacting at all, I mean, I've had good luck with slicks when mm-hmm. when just nothing's working. Um, a weightless slick's been really effective for me. Okay. So like a slick lure with yep. like a three-op beast or something like that? Yep. Yep. Just set the hook really hard. <laughs> yeah, no, fair. Yeah, so let, let's get to that. I mean, what, what do you typically throw? Um, As far as like a hook on a slick? No, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, rod and reel. <laughs> I should have specified that. So, um... There's a local guy up here, uh, Dan Craig. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been fishing one of his rods. It's DC sticks. It's uh, like a century blank. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's nice. Uh, and then also I'm fishing Waterloo's. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I love all the rods that I fish. Uh, both are good. And then um, I like Stratix. Um, mm-hmm. I, I fish spinning reels. Um, I, I have some bait casters, but I just I'm I'm not like great with them and. If I'm going to be out like targeting a big bite, I, I don't want to screw up based off my own failure. Mm-hmm. Um, so mainly spinning reels for me. 3,000 series or what? 2,500s. 25, okay. Yep. Yeah, I'm a 3,000 guy, admittedly, man. Um, I like throwing as much line on that spool as I possibly can. And uh, I mean, again, I'm only throwing a spinning reel, you know, only pretty much to throw those jerk baits. Um and so aside from that, I'm, I'm throwing my bait casters for pretty much everything else, you know, but I like being able to launch that bait as far as humanly possible. And, and honestly, man, like, um, and people that have fished with me, they've seen it. I fish a really light drag. I really do. Um, and one of the things that I saw last week that, um, you know, going back to lures and stuff, I mean, we, we've talked about it enough which like upgrading your hardware. So like your hooks, um, I can't tell you, I mean, a fish would like the front hook. And it's funny. Cause even when I'm fighting a fish, I can tell when that fish came unbuttoned, like a treble hook came off. I'm like, Oh crap. All right. Here, what's going on. But to the point of upgrading your hardware, I had one, clearly it would, it ate and had like, you know, as a shadow wrap, it had both of the, the top and the middle treble up towards like the cheek and in the corner of the area, corner of the mouth. 
And then that last one was like right towards their pectoral fin. Well, I could feel that, that hook come out, uh, during the fight and fishing with those, that light drag, it's fine because I'm not putting, it's just a nice give and take. And that last hook, I had one single hook buried like right underneath that peck fin and hooks didn't bend. I use those owner SD 36s and was able to land that fish. And that just so happened to be a 28 and a quarter, you know? So it just shows man, like how upgrading your hardware can be a big thing. But aside from that, like, again, kind of being in tune with your equipment and fishing with, you have confidence in, you know, being productive. Yeah. I don't want to be fumbling with a bunch of other stuff. If you don't have to be, you know, just dial in what you got and then be in tune, super in tune with that. And then go from there and then upgrade your stuff, man. That's, if I could give a tip, you know, not that <laughs> that's critical. nobody's asked me, but like, if I could give a tip, man, always upgrade your hardware, make sure your hooks are sharp, make sure they're good quality hooks. I say that my most important tool is my split ring pliers. Cause I mean, I swap all the hooks out and like, if I, if I have a fish come off, I don't care if those hooks are fresh. I'm swapping them out when I get home. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I, th- that's a bad feeling losing a fish and you can fix that on your own. Yeah. Those now hooks that... that you recommended were, um, they were the Daiichi Di- bleeding bait, uh, mm-hmm. wide gap four X. Those yeah. things are insane. I have those on all my top waters now. Mm-hmm. That I eat, well, that's not me, man. That's actually Doc J. Wright, who is also on season one. Uh, that's kind of his hook. You know, it's that little round bound number four. Daiichi bleeding hook, double XL, I think is what it is. It's like an aluminum hook. So it's lighter, um, but man, it's sharp and it, it doesn't It's really me. sharp. Yeah, right. But uh, dude, I mean, so one thing I found too, and I maybe didn't put enough stock into that was... And it was, as a result of last week, got on a really good bite with that high float, that Vision 110 high float. And just over the course of taking those fish out or taking the hooks out of the fish, you know, using pliers, I try to not use pliers, admittedly. Um, You know, if I can get a, hold the fish with a bow grip, I can kind of meander around and kind of take those hooks out. Because if you think about it, like using like pliers and you're tinkering around with those hooks and then pulling them out, what I found was is some of them I just had to use pliers, but as you're holding that hook, you're kind of bending down that barb a little bit. And so, man, I was missing, missing a couple fish like back to back to back. And I'm like, what is going on here? And it was all on that high ten, 110 high float. And I looked at the hooks and I'm like, oh my God, like two of the middle ones, one of them was broken off one. <laughs> yeah. And in the back hook, like all the barbs were kind of mushed in just because I was using those, those pliers to get them out. And so I immediately swapped to a, a, a shadow wrap, kind of give something similar in profile, weren't getting nearly as many bites, but when I finally got a bigger bite, um, I was able to land that fish. Um, and so again, folks listening, just upgrade your hardware and be mindful of that stuff. And to your point of, Hey, after a trip, take a look at that stuff, replace it as it needs to be, because, for a what a maybe a dollar and ten cent hook that you would get on a replacement, that may be worth your fish of a lifetime. And so, really, even on leader, like if you're cutting a a twenty five cent piece of you know three foot leader, if you got a nick in it, cut the dang thing off and then replace it because you don't want twenty five cents keeping you from a fish of a lifetime. You know. Yeah, I mean, you want to put as many things in your favor as you can. Like, I don't want to give the fish a reason that it got off. Yeah, especially by your own doing, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you feel about... like you're after after you you know catch a fish and you feel you leader and you're like, ah, oh, it's got a little nick in it. That'll be good. You never know, man. I mean, that next that next cast could be the one, you know. And yeah, it, I mean, it, I had one bite me off this year because I didn't change the leader. It bit through twenty pound test. Jeez, and, uh, like it kept fighting, and I just watched it fight off while I was broken off. And I changed my leaders a lot more now. Yeah, fair. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, man. Well, dude, thanks so much, brother. Um, I appreciate it, Charlie, man. One for all of the followership and the listenership, being active in Speckled Truth, bro. I mean, I, I really cannot thank you enough for all the support that you've given uh, Speckled Truth, man, throughout the course of the years, man. I really appreciate it. I mean, no problem. The, the movement is, it's really easy to get behind and it, it's really making an impact. So thank you for doing it. That's cool to hear, buddy. That is, man. Well, hey, for everyone else listening, um, 
really appreciate your listenership as well. If you can leave leave us a comment or or rate us and review us. Again, it really helps. We're we're always you know looking at that stuff, trying to find ways to improve and, and bring you better content, better stories. We got a lot of really great guests uh, still lined up. This is episode ten, I think, of season two um, out of a twenty episode season. So we're stoked, man. We still got some great guests lined up for the remaining part of this year. And I really appreciate Charlie um, just giving us some insight with regards to the Virginia estuary as well. But for everyone else listening, please help support our, our podcast sponsors, Down South Lures, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky, as well as Mirror Lure, um, Real Sportswear, don't forget Spec 15, S-P-E-C-K 1-5, um, get 15% off that purchase, uh, as well as Carbon Line and Leroy Navarro there at Carbon Line. Really appreciate all their support uh, for this podcast. So, again, thanks again, Charlie. Appreciate you, brother. And uh, until next time, guys, tight lines. God bless. And always remember, take what you need and release the rest. God bless. Mm-hmm.